Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, in this episode of This Pathological Life, we're talking about a condition, celiac disease, that um, <laughs> unlike many of the things we talk about, this one I seem to encounter every time I open a menu at a restaurant. Yes, it's very common. Uh, a lot more common than what we thought it was. Uh, and, you know, we, we now have sort of a, a weird sort of hybrid now. We have people with celiac disease and people who are gluten intolerant but not celiac, and then we have people who are gluten-free but not, you know. Mm. So it is sort of being able to try and work out that divide a little bit. And there's uh, perhaps unfairly cultural pushback against the people who claim to be more gluten gluten intolerant than they maybe are. <laughs> Comedians certainly go to town on that, and I'm not sure how helpful that is. And I know that people with celiac disease get quite upset. Look, it's a, it's interesting because what what happens is people who genuinely have celiac disease will become incredibly unwell if they eat gluten, uh, whereas some people who will say oh, I'm intolerant can then go and have a bre- you know bread basket and you know okay they're okay you know yes. so uh, you know one of those uh, you know challenging areas. But look, the the interesting thing um, as I always like to do is I want to put some context in this, and and our context in this story is actually in September. 1939 and the the interesting thing is this is when germany invades poland and a bit of a different uh, twist for you there steve (laughs) yes i'm i've got my finger i don't know where you're going with this (laughs) so we have except uh, that an army marches on its stomach is that a clue oh i have no idea i don't know that expression all right yeah so if that (laughs) stomach is full of bread that's making them uncomfortable (laughs) maybe uh, and so uh, history enthusiasts will know about the politics and everything. So we'll just put it into context. And at that time, uh, you know, World War Two was uh, impending. Uh, Netherlands was hoping to remain neutral at this time. Uh, but we have May of uh, 1940, when Germany turns its interest on France, Belgium, Luxembourg and, and Netherlands uh, and invades. Now, what ends up happening is Germany is surprised by the resistance, particularly in the Netherlands in in this story, Uh, and, uh, you know, 10th of May is when they invaded. And when they're surprised by the resistance, four days later, there's what we call the Rotterdam Blitz. Now, the stories, the, the history tells us that Germany was a little bit frustrated by the resistance, and they gave a two hour notice to the, the Dutch army, uh, Weekelmen, that he was going to turn around and say, You're either going to surrender or we're going to level Rotterdam. Uh, and at that time, uh, Winkleman turned around and said, Well, please make it official, trying to stall. Uh, and then the, the German commander, the Schmidt, actually turned around and said, Okay but that wasn't relayed to the pilots. And so there was oh, no. the Rotterdam Blitz, who within 15 minutes on the 14th of May, dropped over 100 tonnes of bombs. There was fire destruction, over 900 people killed, around 85,000 uh, homes destroyed, and ended up, Netherlands ended up 
actually surrendering the next day. But this is World War II. This is the environment that starts. And, and what's ended up happening is they began five years of Nazi occupation, and it comes with all the atrocities, all the degradation, all the inhumanity of World War II. Uh, mm. Dutch people are forced from their homes. They are starved. They're forced to work. The Jewish population, which was around 140,000, up to 160,000 with the mixed marriages at that point in time, are rounded up. And people are registered. And what's end up happening, as, as in World War II, uh, about 107,000 Jews are sent off into concentration camps. Those that go there, about 5,200 survive. There was about 25 to 30,000 uh, Jews that go into hiding, assisted by the Dutch underground, and two-thirds of those survive. As the war progresses, though, and this is the, the part that's relevant for this story, is the resistance increases as war continues. The Dutch people are more and more oppressed, uh, and they're starting to have uh, factories work for uh, the, the Germans. Every Dutch man between the ages of 18 and 45 is forced to work in the factories for the war machine, the German war machine. And that's a dual problem because they're forced to work and then the Allies are bombing the, oh, the, the factories. Working. Yeah. And so we then get to 1943 and things are going poorly for the Germans. They're trying to construct the Atlantic Wall, which is a defensive line across multiple countries, more forced labor for Dutch people. And then we have uh, thousands more being displaced already by this construction and resistance is on the rise. And so with this resistance, there's harsh punishments. And so we know that there's the Dutch government in exile in London and because of this, in September 1944, they see an impending food crisis for the Dutch people. And so what they end up doing is convincing the Dutch railway workers to strike. Some 30,000 people, 30,000 workers strike. And so that shuts down Dutch area and production. And then... We, we, I'm just going to say, we, we forget some of the bravery <laughs> that these people... Um, displayed because it's one thing to strike at any time, but when you've got Nazi overlords and you're striking, that that is some degree of gumption. And and that's what I, I sort of can't get my head around. Like thirty thousand workers strike. The uh, problem, but, but just like waiting for a train to come, I'm waiting for celiac disease to come. <laughs> is it? Is it, it it's uh, on the this sets it up okay. into the next area, and and that was the thing. The German military then took control of the railway. The consequence, though, is that the Germans cut off food and fuel transports to the Netherlands. And so this resulted in what's called, not what we know to history as hunger winter, or the winter of hunger. It was six weeks of, that, of hunger, of food shortages, that ended up being initially six weeks, but ended up going from November 1944 to the end of the war in May 1945. Mm. The harshness of all this... And the treatment ended up losing about 20,000 civilian lives deaths. And this is where we find the story of celiac begins. All right. And that's coming up on the next station. We'll just pause briefly. We'll be there in a moment. 
when I was, with all the times I was pregnant with the children, I was always very anemic and I could never get on top of that. And about five years ago, I was trying to take more exercise to make sure I was stayed fit in my old age. And whenever I would do that, my legs would ache a lot. So I went to talk to the doctor about it and he took my blood and he said, not only are you anemic, are anemic but I think there's, you've got an absorption problem. So then I went to the doctor at the hospital in Plymouth and I had a um, biopsy done and it was proved to be celiac. So I was rather, I was surprised. <laughs> Travis, that's a fascinating history in that setup with World War II. But the disease itself, celiac disease, does its history stretch back further than that? It does. So we, we have our first description of gastrointestinal problems from Arataeus of Cappadocia. Uh, and he described uh, what, what we would say today is uh, Kiliolkas, or, you know, after Kilia, which is abdomen in Greek. Uh, and there is a, a statement that he wrote. If the stomach be irretentive of the food and it passes through undigested and crude and nothing ascending into the body... We call such persons celiacs. So celiac is a malabsorption syndrome, even noticed back then, uh, thousands of years. And so it just means these people are having digestive problems, mm -hmm. and so they call it celiac disease. Now, we don't see much change in this until 1888, where we get a Dr. S. Guy. Uh, he, he grouped uh, a segment of enteropathy, so gastroenteritis, uh, you know, uh, d symptoms, chronic disease symptoms, uh, he associated, you know, children who have growth inhibition, diarrhea, and malabsorption, and he called what we end up calling uh, Guy Herter syndrome because because in 1904 we have Dr. Herter who wrote a book about it and and he classified it as intestinal infantilism, mm. and, and so they put yeah. this together as a gear herter syndrome so these these symptoms were just into this classification so the assumption being the intestine just hasn't matured yeah and and the you know it's unable to take up uh nutrients and mm. therefore there's a problem so this was the category that they they fitted into and so we then have our dutch pediatrician in 1930s and 1940s dr willem dick and he had patients who were had this Guy-Herter syndrome. So these were patients who were underweight, they poorly developed, they had anemia, and something that we call steatorrhea, and that's a, a passing like really fatty stools, it means you're not absorbing fats, and the mm. body is excellent at absorbing fats, uh, and so it won't pass on that. Uh, so if you're not absorbing fats, something's really quite wrong. And, and as William is practicing in 1936 in The Hague, an event happens that captures his attention. Now, when I was going through medical school, there was a pediatric lecturer who said, always listen to the parent and or the parents. And this is one of those things where it's as true then as it was way back then. It was a young mother's statement of her celiac child's rash improving rapidly if she removed bread from the diet that alerted his interest. And so that statement about a mum's observation about her child stuck with, with Willem, Dr. Dick. And what ends up happening is he writes a case study of a young boy that presents to the hospital who's underweight and unwell 
he puts him on a strict wheat-free diet. He ends up improving and end up getting to the point where he discharged. The problem is, every time he went home, he become unwell again. And this happened for four cycles. He would go home, get unwell, come to hospital, you know, wheat-free diet, get better, go home. And so was this an isolated incident or not? Was this just this, this young child that was getting sick and this? And then in 1934 and 1940, the world changed. We have the Dutch under subjugation and conditions deteriorate. And then in 1944... 1945, we have the hunger winter. And society, Dutch society, begins to starve. And yet, Dr. Willem Dick notices that the health of children with celiac disease improves. And so it's a testament to how severe celiac disease can be when starvation without gluten is an improvement to normal life with gluten. Absolutely. And so the duration of this hunger window, because there's no bread, there's no wheat. And these people, the patients actually begin to improve. So you have a whole group of patients now don't having access to any gluten and their condition improves. And then as the allied planes start to drop food packages that have bread, their condition deteriorates. And so the symptoms return. If certain types of meal such as wheat and rye, are replaced in the daily diet, the patient improves. Acute attacks of diarrhoea do not occur, provided these types of meal are not given. After a latent period, which can vary in length, deterioration and acute attacks of diarrhoea reoccur if the objectionable types of meal are added to the diet too soon. And so after the war's over, he starts to conduct some experiments. They're pretty much gluten challenges or gluten removal. And he finds, narrows down the course. So he knows it's bread, but being able to get it down to gluten takes a few years. And then what we find is a special mention must go to Dr. Mario Shiner. So he's ended up narrowing it down saying, I believe it's gluten that's causing all the symptoms that these patients are having. Now, she's a German-British gastroenterologist, and she endoscoped 10 children with these symptoms in the 1950s, Mm. end up writing a report in the 1960s, and she found 8 out of 10 of them between the ages of 2 years and 15 years had what you would call celiac disease. It was 4 boys and 4 girls, Now, she ended up going down and doing an endoscope and biopsying the duodenum. And there was some histology that they looked at, which is classic for celiac disease, that she wrote in a report. Normal villi were not seen in any biopsy specimens from the eight children with celiac disease. Surface appearances were either flat or showed occasional broad and short villi. And so they ended up doing some repeat biopsies five weeks later, and there was marginal improvement. And then 17 months later, effectively, they said this resembles normal mucosa because they had been on a gluten-free diet. And so in all of this, you sit there and just go, what an incredible way of observation from a mother that a doctor noticed. And then they've gone through and said, here is what the body is finding is a problem. And the final word should go to Dr. William Dick. We have learned in the course of many years' experience in the treatment of celiac disease that it makes a great difference to the patient what kind of starch-containing foodstuffs are included in the diet, 
in particular, whether or not wheat is used. And that's 1953. Well, well, let's um, put Dr. Dick to one side and come back with Dr. Travis Brown in just a moment. How about a panini? No, a panini is also a sandwich. Oh my God, yeah. I never thought of it before, but yes, it's a panini. It's a kind of sandwich. I'll eat it. So what's the science behind it? Did you just wake up one morning and decide you had it? No, I went to the doctor and they did like extensive tests. Oh, well, I don't believe in tests. Too subjective, too convenient. How about a wrap? That is yet another sandwich. So many things are sandwiches. If it's a natural occurring thing, then how come we don't see it in dinosaurs? They didn't have agriculture? Yeah, so? So they couldn't grow wheat. That's just super convenient, isn't it? I don't think you understand what the word convenient means. I can't share a toaster with people. We finally arrived to that point in the podcast, Dr. Travis Brown. We will now delve into celiac disease from that pathological viewpoint. So the disease actually is the most common cause of intestinal malabsorption. So it it occurs around one in 100 or one in 200 people, uh, and it's an intolerance to gluten. Uh, That's in wheat, it's in barley, it's in rye, less likely to be in oats. Uh, But this is a chronic disease uh, that is of long-term intestinal inflammation, and it improves when you remove gluten. So what's actually happening is the body is interpreting gluten as a dangerous product. And so it causes inflammation. It's it's quite impressive when you think about how they worked out because you would think that as soon as you put something in your mouth that has gluten, because you can always have bread in your mouth, you know, why doesn't the inflammation actually occur in the mouth or the esophagus or the stomach? Mm. And it goes all the way into the duodenum. So it's a quite amazing. It's a testament to uh, how they found out that it actually was the duodenum that was the part that's affected. The problem is that's such a large area of absorption. All the villi in the small intestine, if it's all stretched out, can cover the, the uh, surface area of a tennis court. <laughs> and so when you've got inflammation going in there, effectively, when you've got that going on, the histology is all those little villi that absorb gets so much inflamed, it looks like large bowel. And so you don't absorb anything, and that's why people get the symptoms that they do. And so there's a strong genetic link here. And family members are affected about 10 to 15%, but half the patients who have celiac disease have an affected sibling. And so there is also an association with autoimmune disease because, again, this is the body recognizing something that isn't, uh, as sort of an enemy or something that isn't dangerous as dangerous. And so there's also a predisposing factor of finding other things in the body. And that's that's type 1 diabetes, autoimmune thyroiditis, uh, and Sjogren's syndrome. And, and so these patients, so IBS, so inflammatory bowel syndrome, mm. they have people who have celiacs have a, a four times increase of having inflammatory bowel syndrome. And 7% of people with celiac disease fit the classification of IBS. And so they also get, which is something irrelevant when we talk about testing, is they can get a selective IgA deficiency. And so celiac patients have about a 10 to 15 times increase of having IgA deficiency. And I'll come back to why that's important. So when we're doing typing, uh, you know, genetic testing, we, we look at what we call H- HLA types, and that's on the T lymphocytes. And what we end up looking at is there's two predisposing genetic conditions, uh, which is HLA-3. And if a patient has HLA-DQ2, they have a 
chance of having celiac disease. But it's not a great test. And the reason why it's not a great test is because 15% of the general population have that mutation and they anyway. don't have, yeah, and they don't have celiac disease. So the only time that's ever really done is, you know, testing family to see people could have celiac disease that don't do the other, the tests that are a bit more sensitive. And so what do the patients get? Well, the patients get symptoms like anemia. They have nutritional deficiencies, particularly iron and folate. And if it gets really severe, vitamin B12, they have chronic fatigue or, or weight loss. And then they can get abdominal cramping and, and diarrhea, bloating, flatulence uh, and discomfort. And they can also get osteoporosis because of the nutritional loss. And so when we talk about the rash, there's also a rash associated. And, and this is called uh, dermatitis herpetiformis. And that's what the mother was noticing in 1936. And that it would clear up when she removed bread from the diet. That's right. Mm. And so what she was noticing was this rash that resolves when gluten mm. is removed. Mm. And so we have a few blood tests that are relevant. Uh, one's TTG, which is tissue transglutaminase uh, antibody, uh, and another one's called anti-deamidase glidin antibody. Uh, there used to be an old one that I learned when I was going through medical EMA, but we tend not to use that uh, these days. And the reason is be uh, with regards to the IgA and IgG is because that's the immunoglobulin that's created and most of the tests are IgA. The problem is celiac disease have IgA can have IgA deficiency. So if that happens, it will test negative, but not because they're not celiac, it's because they don't have IgA. Right. And so often we'll do an IgG-associated test uh, with those. And so they are also useful to see if people are on a celiac diet, uh, to, to see if they're main. Sometimes you can actually get contamination accidentally that you didn't know, and you can have the symptoms thinking you're having a gluten-free diet when you're actually not. Oh, I, I, in fact, a good friend of mine who is celiac uh, um, sees a restaurant say we're gluten-free, mm -hmm. but she has to do thorough research yeah. because the, a minor bit of contamination. Yeah, can... well, my mother's celiac, and so the interesting thing is you will eat uh, a product thinking it's fine because it's gone gluten-free, but sometimes they'll change the recipe and you didn't know that the recipe's changed and then you get symptoms. And so this is where, you know, gluten-free isn't necessarily gluten-free. And so the the whole thing is sometimes you can have these tests to say, you know, the, the uh, DGP uh, is uh, useful and a little bit more dynamic. So you can have these blood tests and say, oh, you know, if there's no antibodies there, then yeah, you're most likely gluten-free is, is is consistent. Uh, and But there's no guidelines to say how often you do this if you want, you know, as a rule of thumb, people sort of tend to do them every six months if they're wanting to keep an eye on it. But the whole point behind that is that uh, the gold standard of all this is a duodenal biopsy, gastroscope. And so that will tell us, do you have celiac disease or not? Are those villi blunt? Do you have inflammation that's going on? Uh, with that. What, what leads a GP to ask for that? That will be if you're either equivocating uh, on the the results or someone's on a gluten-free diet um, and you're not quite sure and, and definitely doesn't, or you actually just need to find out, do they have celiac disease? So the, the whole thing behind that is it will... Is there false negatives? Yeah, there are. Uh, even with the gastroscope is because if they've got really extensive disease, yeah, any biopsy you're going to take is, you know, going to show it. If you've got patchy disease, inflammation in certain areas, you might miss it just on the biopsy. So it just depends. Sometimes it can be a, 
something that's missed if it's a subtle presentation. And then what we have, it's important to note that a gluten-free diet isn't a good test in itself. So if someone feels better oh. on a gluten-free diet, it's not necessarily because they're celiac, because we know that patients who have inflammatory bowel syndrome often report feeling better on a gluten-free diet. But we know 25% of people who have celiac disease will not feel better on a gluten-free diet, even though the inflammation is better in their duodenum. So... The gluten-free diet in itself is not a good test. It's not a good good clinical examination uh, to work out, does this patient have celiac? Right. And the important thing to note is the villi will start to recover within weeks to months, but the antibodies will stay around for about three to six months. So they'll still be about that time, which is why it's a good test if someone's been on a gluten-free diet for a long time, mm. that you can do the blood test and hopefully the antibodies aren't there. That being said... You you know, if two months in, well, they're probably going to be antibodies already still about. So you can't monitor it in a, in a short-term way. Mm. And so the, the whole point behind this is it's an incredible story about celiac disease that shows the, a doctor listening to a patient or a patient's mother mm. saying, I think this is what's going on. And unfortunately, a war that proved it correct. Thank you, Dr. Travis Brown, for that, and also for clearing up the term IgA deficiency. I always thought it was only when you had coals and woolies around you. Uh, now I know better. Very good. And that's it. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references, and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.